Is it really that important to eat organic? What is conscious parenting? Does homeopathy actually work? Oh god, the flu. How do I beat it naturally? How do I prepare for birth? What are the benefits of meditation? This is Healthy Happy Home, the podcast community that offers discussions and solutions for a fully conscious and integrative approach to living and parenting. We will explore and open up the topics of natural health and well-being, holistic parenting, consciousness and work-life balance to empower you to live your healthiest, happiest life. We're so grateful that you're joining us on this journey. We'd love it if you could take the time to rate, review and subscribe. It will help other people to find us so that we can grow our Elevation Nation. This season of Healthy Happy Home is sponsored by Mega Home Water Distillers, the most reliable and efficient home drinking water distiller. Mega Home are kindly offering listeners of the Healthy Happy Home podcast a 5% discount. Just use the code HHH5 at checkout. Thank you to Mega Home. We're so looking forward to learning more about holistic education with today's guest. Dominic Miles has spent 20 years of his life as an educator, the first 10 of which were spent in the state education system. It was here that Dominic realised that the incumbent approach to education failed to meet every child's needs, leaving little space for nurturing gifts and talents that lay outside of the narrow band of subjects prioritised in schools. Running parallel to this, he began to develop a wild outdoor learning environment to encourage all children to get out of the classroom. Following on, Dominic decided to qualify as a forest school leader and soon found that the ethos of forest school deeply countered the principles that the conventional education system is based on. He eventually left the conventional setting to set up his own forest school, Wild Time Education, which rests within its own private sanctuary of woods and meadows in an idyllic Hertfordshire setting, offering children, he says, the opportunity to escape the pressurised mainstream schooling system and immerse themselves in child-led, rejuvenating and empowering outdoor learning that is not based on a hierarchical system of winners and losers, a place where each child is able to cultivate their passions, interests and otherwise hidden talents in their own time and at their own pace. Alongside his wife Crystal, Dominic home educates their son Noah and daughter Robin. So welcome Dominic. Hello, thank Hi, you Dom. for having me. Hi Dominic. So welcome, thanks for being here with us. So before we delve more into Forest School itself as a means of holistic education, we just want to touch on what holistic education means and why the current model of education in the UK is failing children on such a huge scale, thereby encouraging parents to homeschool more than ever before. So we'd like to start with a quote from Sir Ken Robinson's book, Creative Schools, where he says, the current system of education was developed in large part to meet the labour needs of the Industrial Revolution and it is organised on the principles principles of mass production. So is this our problem? Um, well, there's two things that popped into my head while, while you were going through that introduction. One of them is how do we define holistic education? Because it's difficult to band anything under one general umbrella. And there are elements of holistic education shown in various uh, blueprints for it, which... I don't necessarily agree with. One would be core academics. So how does that fit in with holistic education? Um, If you're looking at unschooling or uh, home edding, um, I'm not sure that I would agree that there's a place at the table for 
core academics until such time as the children are showing an indication that they're ready for such things. And actually, I'm not sure I would even touch on what we traditionally think of as core academics unless it's that knowledge is being gained through learning about a fundamental subjects like science, which is um, everything on earth, really. Um, when I was a school teacher, we had inset trainings and uh, the various subject leaders would lead their subject areas at inset training. And uh, there was a bit of a, a joke going around where each teacher would start and they'd say, science is the world. Science is the most important subject. Mm -hmm. And then the following week, maths would come along and they'd say, maths is how we define the world. So it's the most important subject. And so it went on all the way along with uh, various subjects. But um, actually, I think with science, it really was true that uh, it's how we define the world around us and we can apply it to our biology and, and you know, as far down as how we relate and interact with each other. So, um, <clears throat> so I would always say that uh, things like maths and literacy are the vessel through which we get to understand the world around us. But they shouldn't be the all-encompassing uh, driving force for what education looks like as it stands at the minute. And I think that's probably a fundamental problem. Um, going on to Ken Robinson, I think the guy's a genius, actually. I think uh, I, I love agree. listening. Yeah, we love him. Yeah, I love listening to his talks, and um, and I have a couple of his books at home as well. Um, in one of his talks, he talks about... Um, the uh, continuing increasing of standards and that, that sounds like a good thing to him why would we not want that um, and to my mind we can't have that and also at the same time do you mean what what we're value what we're valuing the children well on? currently what we what we measure when we talk about standards in schools we're measuring um, a narrow band of skills which mostly relate to science um, yeah a little bit of science but um, literacy and math skills predominantly and there's ICT stuff coming in programming and all that now these are all easily defined and measured skills and on the face of it yeah it's a good idea to continue trying to improve those standards but if we do continue trying to improve those standards it means that we can't then make the fundamental changes which are necessary because we're, we're leaning on the same system we always have done which you talked about at the beginning came around yeah, the 18th century yeah. industrial revolution period uh, to serve a purpose, uh, to meet a need at that time. Um, so I would say that uh, the whole education system is upside down and we need to do away with a concern about in improving the standards that uh, we measure um, the success of schools by currently. Um, and this was always an issue I had when I was a school teacher. But someone gave me this uh, analogy, and I quite liked it. It was um, a chap called uh, Fletch. He was a groundsman, uh, but he was perhaps the smartest guy I've ever met. Um, and he uh, he used to describe what I was doing and one or two other teachers as uh, we were behaving like gorillas behind enemy lines. Um, so we were working within the state system, working with children, identifying what we felt were important, was important for each individual child to help them to develop. But at the same time, we could only keep our jobs if we were meeting the expectations of the school in, in terms of increasing standards in the narrow band of subjects that we talked about before. Um, so it was always a balance between what do the children actually need and 
what do I have to do in order to be able to carry on working with these children? Mm. And the school I worked at was a, a, a high-performing school um, and was outstanding as measured by Ofsted. And it was a bit of a, a kind of a vicious circle because once you have that accreditation, it becomes the be-all and end-all. You're scared to lose it because... You know, it has a big impact on a school to lose that status. Whereas if you're just, uh, not just, but if you're a good school, then um, you haven't got as far to fall, if you like. I think there is a bit of a mentality like that at work. So um, the pressure was always on us to to meet ever-improving standards. And there was a cost because the children's needs were being met less and less along the way as the pressure built on the teachers to make sure we can not just meet the performances of the previous year, but then to improve them. And it totally ignored the fact that uh, each uh, intake can be different to the last previous year's intake. And it ignores the fact that um, central government ch policy changes, where um, special schools were done away with, uh, changed the dynamics in classrooms. It ignored the fact that with austerity, we were losing staff here and there. And, and the manpower is is um, significant, you know. Yeah, so you're not able to focus enough on the individual child's needs because you're having to sort of mass mass produce these kids that are passing certain tests. Yeah, well, I tried really, <laughs> I tried really hard. Um, but I can remember even in my first year as a school teacher, um, this is before I had children, there was one young lad and um, I didn't really know what I was doing. But I just felt instinctively that he was in the wrong place. He was stuck, though. You know, there was nowhere else for him to go. Um, he'd already had a bit of a difficult life in various ways. I don't really need to go in into, but not equally not a particularly uncommon set of experiences um, at that age. He was about six years old, and I tried everything I could think of to try and access him in a way that I would allow me to help him. He wasn't academically able at all, at all. Um, and it, I was trying to, like Ken Robinson would say, I was, I, was, I was trying to find the thing that would help him define himself and, and improve his sense of self-worth and, uh, and allow him to function more, uh, more ably in that setting. Because what was happening was he was getting to the stage where any interaction was a positive one as far as he was concerned. And it was... Uh, kind of uh, creating a child that was getting in trouble left, right and centre um, and that allied to the fact that at home there wasn't anyone supporting him, not really. Um, meant that at the age of six, five and six, I felt like I could see his whole life mapped out before him and it wasn't good. And, uh, and I beat myself up quite a lot about that because I couldn't work out what I could do to help him. I tried... You know, being a new teacher, tried maybe I should be a bit strict. I'm his first male teacher. They say there's something in that. That didn't seem to get any response. And I thought, well, you know, that isn't really how I am. That's never how I've been with people. So maybe I should be a bit more natural. And and the most progress I had with him was when um, I kind of took him under my wing a bit more and, and was more nurturing. And there isn't a happy ending to the story because I was, I was feeling my way with this. Um, I never felt like I got where I wanted to get to with this child. And, and subsequently, he uh, did go down a, a, a difficult path. I don't know where his life is now. But, um, but I spent, I still think about him now, and I spent every year in the school subsequently 
trying to learn from that experience. And when I had other children, because in every year group there are children who uh, struggle um, to fit in, um, I had him in mind and and an ever growing armory of um, skills that I could try and apply. They didn't always work, but I think they always helped a bit. Was um, it the school system itself that was holding you back from helping him? The 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 rules. Um, no, well, I think it was a combination of, yeah, that, but also I didn't have the knowledge to be able to do anything anyway. I was so green. So is this now, a case of schools aren't able to um, have give teachers the tools they need to actually be what children need them to be? Do, do teachers need a, deep, a deeper understanding of children other than what they're just um, learning in their PGCE? It's, it's, it's such a big subject. Um there's so much we could say it is about pers- the personal, individual, uh, the teacher, uh, but it's also about the school's attitude and it's about the, the, the whole country's or, or the world's attitude yeah. towards education. So, so at every level, there are things that we could do. As a teacher, um, we can perhaps see ourselves as enemies, um, gorillas behind enemy lines, as I said before. Um, but an important part of that is being reflective, evaluating your day, not in terms of, um, okay, so what used to happen in the staff room after school every day is all the teachers would kind of unload and it would be pretty kind of a unceremonious unloading of irritations and even anger at students and it would kind of be comical at times and it would be the sort of thing you would never say to the parents and mm. people were letting off steam. A bit like maybe if you go home and you talk to your partner at home and you let off steam about colleagues. Um, but what was missing and what I soon worked out, thanks to um, mentors that you meet along the way, when you're on the right path, you kind of meet people and, and they kind of indicate to you through how you chat to them that, yeah, no, I am going the right way. So I remember one of those mentors um, explaining to me, this is around the time that I discovered Forest School, that um, you've got to look at yourself before you look at the children. Anytime a situation comes up, look at yourself. How have you influenced that situation? And up until then, I'd probably just seen it as the children are doing this, the children are doing that. From that point on, it became... A, a routine at the end of every day to kind of sit down initially it helped to have someone to do it to to talk it through with like uh, I did this well I suppose actually I did influence it by saying that or being like this um, so some of this is on me um, and sometimes it was nothing to do with me but it's important to have that conversation because if you're if you're asking people to work in a in an environment which is highly stressed with high expectations beyond what's possible often um, with a load of children, many of which, perhaps even the majority, shouldn't even be there, uh, and so that has its own um, behavioural consequences, then um, they're going to be stressed. And if you are stressed or you know, work-related stress, or it could even be personal stress at home, you've got your own children, we are, we've all got children, so we know what can happen with uh, um, in daily life with your children, and uh, when you've got to get them off to school or you've got to get yourself to work or there's someone coming to look after them and they're running late, all those stresses feed in. And you might turn up at school and, and you think you're consistent, but you're not because you're responding to your own set of circumstances, mm. as are the children. But 
teachers aren't particularly good at looking at themselves um, because they haven't got the time for it and there certainly isn't any training for it. Uh, and I think that teachers could do a lot to help the situation by becoming more aware. I do it automatically now. After every single session, whether it's with myself or with one of the other ladies that I work with, we have a conversation or I have it with myself about, OK, what happened today and uh, what could I have done differently with that situation? Was it of my own causing? Was it? it maybe, and often it's not, but, um, but I have to have that conversation and it informs what happens next time. But could yeah. it be that, obviously, teachers, like you say, te- there's so much pressure in schools um, that teachers are kind of coming into it not realising, and they're doing the best based on the knowledge they have, but the knowledge they have that they've been given perhaps isn't enough for them to succeed <coughs> 30 children or more in a yeah, class. Yeah. Like you say, not all of whom should be there. Yeah, no, I totally agree. We're all doing the best we can. And I should add that there are some amazing teachers. I Lots of my uh, friends still work in... In, in the state education system and there's a huge argument to say that uh, we want as many as possible to stay and not leave um, the state education system because if they did the people with the kind of attitudes I'm talking about then we're in an even worse state than we find ourselves now um, it's funny isn't it when you think, look back at your school the subjects you often like are the ones where it's the te- people who say oh mm-hmm. I love my math teacher I love this person or and I see with my kids they do well in a certain subject, normally according to whether how well they get on with the teacher. So actually, the teacher—it really is all about the, the way the teachers react or, or interact with the children. Yeah, yeah. One of the things we really wanted to focus on was, you know, from our research and our understanding of what the problem is within the system. Number one, you know, Sir Ken Robinson talks about there are solutions. You know, he's gone into many schools in America where he now lives. Even though he's from Liverpool and has reformed these systems. But from what I see as the problem, personally, maybe based on my own uh, experiences, is that the school system focuses on a child's weaknesses as opposed to their strengths. We have to get to this point of, um, you know, this standardised testing thing where all the children have to do the same and be the same and fit into the same mould. And if you're not good at that, that's what you're going to be pushed into. And what you are good at isn't going to be given enough time because you need to focus on things you're bad at. And Mm. I'd like to touch for a minute on my own experience, just because it affected me very, very, very profoundly. Um, And I I was always very bad at maths, very bad at numbers. I didn't enjoy it. Maybe I could have been better at it, but I didn't enjoy it, and it, it, it made my mind go a bit funny trying to. So what happened? Have a maths tutor. Do more maths. No, don't spend more time on English. Don't spend more time on writing that essay. Spend more time on maths. I began to resent school because of that Hmm. as I got into high school and and actually you know as a young child no one was kind of able to and I don't put this onto my parents because I think in that generation as well you know my parents were both working full-time I was sick as a child as well so I you know that they had that to deal with um and they didn't have the access to information that we have now Hmm. um in terms of child psychology and what children need from education and psychologically emotionally so they were doing the best they could But in school, no one ever looked at the fact that I loved writing. You know, my favourite things to do were if a teacher said, write about your summer holiday. Oh, I was so excited to go home and write about my summer holiday or to anything writing. No one ever looked at that. Therefore, I didn't. Mm -hmm. And said, maybe she'd be really good as a writer. Maybe she really enjoys writing. Let's try and cultivate this. Let's try and Mm -hmm. give her kind of the tools to move forward with this. Never. I was told, and I heard on many occasions, the words average not a high flyer, Mm. she'll do okay. 
So when I got to high school, and that came with its own set of problems based on kind of trying to move away from being the disabled child into this teenager who now had a few years of being okay. So I was just trying to fit in. And I still loved writing. I was still very good at it. So in my English, um, when I was studying English GCSE, I had a lovely teacher who I loved. I did this piece of coursework and we had to, it was for our, um, our GCSE coursework and we had to write about a, a, a subject that really interested us and it could be about anything. I chose to write about slavery in America, um, in the South. This was something we'd never been taught about. And so I was reading this stuff on my own and it really touched me. Something about it spoke to me and it, ever ha- it has, you know, ever since. Mm. And I wrote about that. And she, she said to me, this has touched me really profoundly and it's the best piece of GCSE coursework I've ever read hmm. and I'm going to use it as a reference for my A-level students. And I was wow. like, okay, cool. She never at that point said, you know what, Lauren, don't leave school to go to performing arts school because that, that was the only thing I thought I could do at that point. Not that that's wrong, but I had no confidence in any other abilities. Hmm. Stay on, you know, stay on and do English A-level. No one said that to me. Hmm. So it took me until my late 20s to figure out that I was meant to be a writer. Yeah. So um, the, the opportunity perhaps was there at the end for her to identify that um, you needed that message. But um, maybe by then, outwardly, it looked like your, traje- your traje- trajectory... <laughs> it's always a hard word, isn't it? <laughs> was, uh, ...was defined. Maybe to her it looked like you knew what you were doing. So it was an accumulating problem, wasn't mm-hmm. it? It caused over many years... Uh, by uh, multiple kind of uh, people. Also, do you think at that time that that jobs as writers or art, that's the whole thing, is that now they're saying that in the future these creative subjects are so much more, going to be so much more valuable, Mm. where everything Mm. is like automated by computers. A lot of the jobs that we were, thought we were going to be doing are are Mm. already taken care of. So the creativity is something that you... You can't program a computer to be creative. So a, write, mm. a job as a writer now is a, like a very valuable yeah. um, future career. But at that time, maybe people didn't think of it as like, well, what are you going to, you know, what is the, what are you going to be doing? There wasn't, they didn't understand. I've, I've, I've got another anecdote coming up. Sorry. This no, one revolves it. around um, another little boy. And he was, a, he was a, a very able, capable little boy in, in, a, in a school setting. Um, and he was with me, I think, in year one. This is more than, it's probably more like 14, 15 years ago even. And um, he was a really kind of bubbly, right side of cheeky to still get away with it, being slightly rude and it was okay, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, whenever I uh, set the children to a writing task, he would just do what he wanted to do. And he came up with some great stories, great ideas for stories. And it never bothered me, uh, even though the other children were kind of sticking to the plan because I was following a plan that had been written up in, in the weeks previous. And, you know, because I was part of a three form entry with three other teachers teaching the same scheme of plans. I felt like we've all got to be doing the same thing. But this was the, the kind of the guerrilla approach as well. I was like, no, this kid wants to do it his own way. He's still producing some good stuff here. And uh, what's the harm? Um, and, uh, and then from his mum, I learned that in each subsequent year, it got worse and worse because the teachers couldn't accept that he wanted to do things slightly differently. And, uh, he got hammered year after year and his mum was actually a teacher in the school. 
herself, and you would think that that would give her some influence over over what happens. But the, the strength of the need for conformity or uniformity was so great that even then this kid was getting hammered because he uh, he liked doing things his own way slightly differently. It was still great stuff, um, but it wasn't uh, what he was supposed to be doing. And uh, I saw her the other day, and uh, and she just by coincidence, and uh, and she said that she still remembers talking to me at parents' evening about his creative writing and how great it was, and that despite all that happened in the ensuing years, as he struggled with education, he still writes now. And it was great to hear that he hadn't been totally kind of... Uh, been squashed out of yeah, it. Yeah, creatively ruined so by So the school by those didn't kill his creativity. No, no. But but he was lucky in that he had a mum that didn't think that whatever right. the school said was So that's what it law. comes down to. Um, yeah. Having the support. Because schools have the ability to kill our creativity. And if we allow that to happen... Pa- parents can have a big say, no question. I say parents evenings again and again and again that... Um, that uh, what I provide at school is the uh, the cherry on the top of the cake because the cake was built by them and most of it, uh, that child is made up of what the parents yeah. have given to that child. Mm-hmm. So, so you can years. your value systems you can put on, so you can say, well, you know, if you're not good at maths, actually, that's fine because we love the fact that, you you know, you're really enjoying violin or dance or the art, the creative art subjects as well. So you can... You can the way you react to them saying not getting a good grade is the way that you can support them if they are in these kind of commercial yeah, well, school systems. My view then was different to it is now. Then it was I still need to get you to try and get to this level in maths. Okay, so I know you don't like it, but let's just sit down and get this done, and then we can do some of the other things that you're you're a bit keener on. Now my view is extremely alternative compared to what it was. So my son did go to school when I was still a school teacher. Um, he attended school and it was okay. I felt lucky because at t- teacher training college, I can remember one of the uh, trainers, one of the lecturers explaining to us that for, uh, roughly 40% of children will be able to not thrive but they'll be able to function quite well in the state education system then you'll have another maybe 30 to 40 percent who will have to adapt in order to fit in Um, and we're quite adaptable so you know that's manageable for most and then you've got uh, the remaining 20 or so percent and those become the children that get labeled as having the problems uh, behavioral in some form or other Um, and they can carry that label with them the rest of their lives Mm -hmm. And, of course, it's not their fault. It's the system not meeting their needs. Now, my son was one of the lucky ones in that in that first year of school. He happened to be the, 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 the 40% that it works quite well for. From an ac- academic point of view, he slotted in nicely. And, actually, he was thriving from that point of view. But there were fundamental concerns on mine and my wife's part about other aspects of it. It was his total... Um, acceding to authority uh, that we were most concerned about because conformity is quite a big problem. Conformity works, I suppose, if the status quo is right, Mm -hmm. if it's working for everyone. Conformity is our own worst enemy if if there's an imbalance, an unfairness that exists because conformity allows it to continue existing. It's hard to step away from the norm, though, and 
and everything is pushing you to get back in line and, and stay with the system. But because I had seen what the future might hold for my son, my wife and I, that he perhaps might spend the first 30 years of his life um, academically, I'm sure he would have thrived. But we were worried that he would just kind of have a, a join the dots life until such point as he realised, hang on, this isn't making me happy. I'm going to have to think for myself. And if you've left it till you're an adult to do it, you have to undo, you know, decades yeah. of um, sort of, of training, propaganda, it, or yeah. So we decided to take quite a big step and home educate him. And uh, we've had some full storms, but um, but actually it's it's working really well now. So so he work he spends a lot of time in the outdoors in nature. He does a lot more physical stuff than he ever used to do, like ice skating and climbing and things like that. Um, and his physical confidence, you might call it physical intelligence, is uh, amazing to me now, um, because I could see how in- inhibited he was before. I didn't realise the extent to which he'd be able to go with it. And it's a, it's a moving picture, so it'll continue to change and, and evolve. But um, but I can see the value in having done that. Um, we have had to accept that if we're looking at the academic side of things, that he hasn't now made the progress he would have if he was in school. Mm. And even from my teaching, with my teaching background... I still have the insecurities that other parents who've chosen an alternative path will have. Mm. That is, oh gosh, I hope I haven't accidentally closed doors on possible future options for him. But I have to trust that the theory works, that I and Crystal will be able to identify the moments in his life when he is ready to absorb new things, new experiences, new knowledge and then we run with it. Now that's the theory with with uh, with our version of home educating that we're going to allow him and my daughter as she gets older to experience as much as possible, have opportunities to do things. There's no way they'd be able to do on a regular basis, if at all, if they were in, in a school, a traditional school setting. And um, and we're always there to help him, and and maybe identify the ones where he's not able to, that he clearly has um, a leaning towards. Um, and and maybe then we can direct him. That's when the academics would come back in. That, this is my version of what education should be, mm. where we, we tip it all upside down. So we, we don't address literacy and numeracy skills initially. We address all the other stuff, that what the world's made of stuff. Yeah. And then when they have a keen interest in something, we can, we can develop that interest through picking up maths and literacy skills. And that's the only way the child's motivated to do it, as far as I'm concerned. It's funny how the school system, it's like um, people value, say their intelligence is based on their academic success, whereas really we know now that your emotional intelligence is probably even more important for when you mm. work, you know, go to work and interact with people or need to come up with mm. a concept or solve a problem. That's that, that intelligence is very important and it's not so valued, it seems, at school. So, so I guess that's where yeah, the, with the yeah. system that you're doing and the physical intelligence, I mean, those, you know, to be able to do a dance or climb a tree, you have to be very bright to be able to do that. You know, it's yeah. not... I, I used to have these kind of pedagogical discussions with uh, colleagues when I was at school. And it, it, it kind of went around in circles a bit. But my view was that, um, you know, my primary role here is to help produce the citizens 
of the uh, future and what's more important for society is that we're able to function we're able to move amongst each other smoothly with as little friction as possible but that's um, but they're teaching in the, the school obviously the governments are assuming that by conforming that's what we're doing because if everyone is a non-conformist what sort of society are we going to have that's obviously what they're thinking but like you said with your son it was a very fine balance between what was more important. He was fitting in there, but he wasn't a conformist. So do you kind of thwart that and let him go with the academic side? Or do you encourage this kind of nonconformism, with it, which essentially, what is nonconformism? That's our creative side. So yeah, it's indivi- and individualism. Schools, and that's important. why schools are killing it. Because we, if everyone in school, if you've got 250 kids in a school... For argument's sake, and they're all nonconformists. How is that school going to be run? Yeah, well, well, that's why you have all the the rules and the uh, systems in place to to quash um, the differences. Yes. So, so the, the more similar everyone is, the better. Um, it's already challenging enough if you've got a class of thirty plus children, all of various different levels and abilities in every different subject. Um, to try and meet all of their needs. Well, it's impossible, actually. But what happens is you split them into three groups. So, uh, you know, top, middle and and lower. And even then, that's not sufficient enough because within each group, you've got a varied kind of set of abilities. Um, So so it's it's an imperfect system that is um, so entrenched that there isn't the appetite because it would require quite a lot of upheaval to to change it. Uh, And my view is one of many, but... um, but I think that you know huge changes would be needed to, to meet our needs in the future. You touched on creativity. Um, if if the creative industries is where our future lies because of mechanization or you know the uh, artificial intelligence and all that, then um, then we've badly got it wrong in that case because we're focused on on things that really aren't important in that case. Um, I'm, I'm still scratching my head about the. Um, the rolling out of programming in schools, uh, for even for primary age children, it just doesn't make any sense to me because, as I understand it, computers will do all of the programming themselves, uh, and they're already beginning to do that. So why would we waste time teaching children how to yeah, do ch- this? I mean, kids of today, teenagers, never they use their phones as a calculator. I mean, I do. I use my phone. I use my calculator on my phone. I don't add anything up, but. It, it, I just want to read out another... I mean, we're getting a bit um, fangirling on Sir Ken, but I just want to read out another quote because it kind of feeds into what we've just been saying. The fact is that given the challenges we face, education doesn't need to be reformed, it needs to be transformed. The key to this transformation is not to standardise education, but to personalise it, to build achievement on discovering the individual talents of each child, to put students in an environment where they want to learn and where they can naturally discover their true passions. Now, that sounds so simple, but what he says with his book, Creative Schools, is that there is a solution. He's done it, right? So why... And they've done it in Scandinavia. They're doing it there, right? Mm. Now, okay, children are still in a system where, you know, there is some standardisation, but they are doing it. They are doing child-led learning. They are allowing the child to explore their creativity Mm. and, and incorporating all, you know, the creative arts... And, and putting that above, you know, mathematics and literacy, it can be done. So why aren't we doing it? I suppose that... We've got a knock at number 10, don't we, <laughs> yeah. Lauren? Excuse why me. Why aren't you um, doing yeah. it? We're doing this podcast and we really got a few questions for you. <laughs> you can go there and say, I want more of this. And if enough people do that 
then maybe that's where the changes can be made as well. But I think that the problem with that is that we as adults now have been conditioned by the system. By I mean, I sound like a tinfoil hat-wearing conspiracy theorist, but we've all been conditioned yeah. by this by this society that we live in because we mm. all need to be conformists in order to fit in. To but this. we can all see that the, where the future is going and that where the technology is taking over a huge amount of the workforce. But so I think that a lot I of think parents people, can't. Yeah. I think a lot of parents don't see it because if they did, we'd, they'd all be knocking at the headmaster's door. Yeah. Yeah. You know, why are we not encouraging this? So maybe the role now is to speak to the parents more, to encourage parents with this? I, th- I think that um, if your child's going to go to school, then you need to try and give them as many opportunities outside of the school setting to experience new things. Uh, it doesn't mean that that child's going to um, latch onto any one thing and that be their element, as, as, uh, as Ken might describe it. But, um, but it's about giving them lots of new opportunities to experience a wider breadth of things. And that all goes into informing future decisions as they get older. Um, but what we don't want is to limit their experiences of life. I think if, if a child goes to school, it's limited already. So parents have to take some of the uh, ownership mm. and, and give them what they can outside of school. Having said that... Um, in a, more, in a wider kind of a societal um, way of looking things, we might we might say, well, there's there's a money issue there. There's a time issue as well. Uh, both parents having to work, that's something that didn't used to exist. Mm. Um, less money available somehow for uh, things like that. That didn't used to be uh, the same issue. We're, we're less willing to let our children have freedoms because there's a greater perceived threat to let them go outside. So uh, the child's losing out there as well. Um um, can I just ask you something with the homeschooling? Then how would I guess a lot of people who don't know much? I don't know much about it, but you would immediately think if they're homeschooling, how are they then socialising with other children? But yeah. I don't. That's well, that, that's that's one of the, the most common Irish. myths. That's one of the most yeah common um, myths with home education. Yeah. Now I'm sure there are children out there who are home educated and don't have a, uh, a social circle they can tap into. But my experience of it and. Um, yeah, I suppose maybe I've been lucky, but but my experience is that uh, my son has more friends that he hangs out with now than he ever did before, um, and he hangs out with them in a much wider variety of locations, doing a wider variety of activities. So, so the so the idea is that it's not because I think for you would think homeschooling sounds like you're teaching them at home, mm. but actually you set you go to different groups where other families are doing a schooling system. Yeah, so well, the, yeah, that's the, how it people, kind of works. It, it's 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 a quite quite it's a quite broad church, um, really, and it doesn't neatly fit under one banner. So you've got some people who reject all kinds of formal learning, um, and they call that unschooling. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Um, but even within that subgroup, I bet there'll be people who'll you know, have a different philosophical approach to it. Uh, and then you've got people like Crystal and I, my wife and I, um, who we would probably describe ourselves as home educators so we're trying to offer lots of opportunities to our children uh, lots of experiences of different things and there is um, some formal learning but it's on a, on a more consensual basis so the, ch- the children are engaged in what they're getting to do a lot more than they would if they were in a school um, some of it's with us and, and some of it's with um, a tutor that we have to come. Now, we're, we're kind of in a lucky position where we've managed to find a way to make this work now. We wouldn't have had that option previously. 
Um, and though the parents who are in that position, uh, but they want some sort of formal learning, they often bandy together. So they might um, invite other home editing parents and children around to their house and they'll choose a subject each to teach yeah. the children. Okay. So they're not formally trained, yeah. but, but they uh, will have a go at teaching the children. See, when I looked into this, because we, we've researched this and thought about it extensively, we have decided to go down the mainstream school route for the simple fact that we can't find a way to make it work with both of us yeah. having our careers. Yeah. We're interrupting this episode really quickly to bring you a message from our wonderful season sponsors. Tilly, check this out. Oh, that's rank. What is it? Nasty, isn't it? I was shocked too, actually. I've started using a mega home water distiller to purify my water. That chemical gunge you can see and smell is what gets left behind. Oh, so normally you'd be drinking that. Yeah. A distiller is the only way to create absolutely pure drinking water. So what are the benefits of having a mega home distiller? Well, the mega home distiller eliminates known nasty toxins like fluoride and chlorine. And it's one of the few distillers that actually removes estrogen too. And so you reckon that Megahome is the one to get? Definitely. The Megahome is more compact, it doesn't get so hot, and they have a service centre here in the UK, so any problems you can phone them, talk to them and get it sorted. Well, what about the filters I can buy in the supermarket? Great question. I actually did a lot of research on this before going ahead with the Megahome. So many of the store-bought filters and the more expensive home filtration systems we hear about don't actually get rid of the most harmful toxins, they just improve the taste. Oh, I bet it's super expensive though. Au contraire, my friend. It's actually super affordable. Just have a look on their website. Okay, so how much water does it distill per day? Well, there's five of us in our house, and I do two distillations a day, which gives us more than enough. Oh, it sounds totally brilliant. I want one. Well, it's your lucky day, Tilly, because Mega Home are offering listeners of the Healthy Happy Home podcast a 5% discount. Just go to megahome-distillers.co.uk and enter the code HHH5 at checkout. Can't wait. One of the issues that we came across, one of the obstacles when we were looking into the group homeschool, we, w- we wanted to do a group homeschool between a group of, group of us who had children of around the same age and we thought, okay, well this will work because we all have our careers. So we thought one family can have the responsibility one day of the week and that way the other four days of the week you've got your career, you've got your time. So it was just a great kind of uh, balance or compromise but when we looked into it, there was a legal thing that you couldn't have four or more ch- four or more children had to be set up as a free school. So that's prevented us from actually doing this home this group home school. And one of the reasons we've decided to go into the mainstream system in the end. Mm. I, th- I think that we're we might be on the cusp of some um, regulation of home education where it's been left to its own devices. Until now, there's been talk of. Uh, a register being um, implemented so all children who are deregistered from school have to be registered as deregistered. And there is, anecdotally at least, there's a lot of resistance to that because I think mostly there's a concern that are are we on the first step to controls being put in place that will limit the options for home ed families to, to do what they think is in the best interest of their their children. Um, it's a complicated question though because you can also argue that there are in rare cases children who fall through the net and haven't been deregistered for the right reasons but for um, more more sinister or, or unhappy reasons. Um, but those I'm sure would be few and far between hopefully. So 
So is it not? So is it not? It's not illegal to not send your child to school. No. So you can. You don't have to send them to school if you don't want. Yes, you just need to deregister them. Let's you not need tell to the kids people. that, hey. <laughs> <laughs> they have to be educated, right? You have to be. Yeah, they have to receive some form of education. I think actually, I I, I shouldn't be saying that with certainty because uh, I can't. I think say that's that what it is from when I looked in. They have to be said to be receiving some form of education so home school is oh, really? you know, home education okay. is education yeah. so um can you just tell us what forest school what forest school is okay well know. well, well forest school i suppose came to this country um from uh, it has its roots roots in nor- northern europe and uh scandinavia and was predominantly uh, used with young children, early years aged children, uh, and they would be they would spend those early years in the outdoors for the most part. And it wasn't particularly formal in any way; it was just about play in the outdoors. Um, and they would pick up skills along the way that related to the setting. Um, I, it came to our shores to uh, to. And, f- and followed the same kind of uh, suit. So um, it was adopted by early years settings. But it wasn't long before people began to realise it could be uh, it could be used in other settings as well. And I just happened to be coming along at the right time, really. So about... Um, I was a school teacher and we had a, a strip of land attached to the school in, in Wembley. And it was pretty much... It was almost completely disused and, and extremely abused to this bit of land. It had old motorbikes and fridges and freezers thrown over the fence from the local residents um, or, or perhaps uh, fly tippers who were going down the lane. And uh, But it had a, I could see it had a load of potential. So this was me as a school teacher, no forest school training. I just had a, a feeling, hang on, this can't be wasted. All these children have grown up in, in London. They don't have access to green spaces. They're from a section of society which doesn't have the income that allows them to get out to wild spaces as easily as we would like. Um, so they're kind of stuck in this um, grey urban setting. So um, I used to go in in the evenings and uh, go in at the weekends and with the groundsmen we'd clear the area. Um, and we did it over the course of about a year. And I... It took about a year, cost a few thousand pounds to get rid of all the rubbish. And at the end, having created a little campfire circle and made some benches and put some wood chip path down, I emailed all the staff in the school and I said, OK, it's ready. You can go and use it. You can take your classes down there. And, uh, and no one went. I took my class because I was still a school teacher, class teacher. Uh, but no one else was going. And I was kind of a bit surprised because yeah. they'd all been so kind of supportive and saying how great it was. And then it dawned on me that um, it was the teachers that were the problem in the nicest possible way um, because the, all their training and all their experience was about being in the four walls of the classroom and there was an over-reliance on technology as well, so in the form of smart boards and now tablets and things like that. Um, and they, that didn't, they didn't know how to they didn't, teach yeah, yeah, they without didn't, all of that. They didn't know how to teach in that setting and they didn't know how to relinquish some control um so there was um probably an insecurity feeling as well about well how do i give up some control over these children i spend my whole time trying to control their behavior and you're telling me take them down to the woods um yeah and where always, i can't see yeah. them the whole time or they might go wild and what am i going to do it's fear 
yeah, yeah, no, it was. So then I realized, okay, so I have to do some teacher training. So, mm -hmm. so I did some, uh, some teacher training sessions with them. And I showed, it was a combination of showing them some activities they could do that anyone could deliver in that setting. But more importantly, it was about painting the scene of what a session would look like and what they need to do. They need to kind of relinquish some of that control. They need to give some of the autonomy back to the children. Um, and let them be a bit freer. I gave them the confidence that we're all fenced in. They can't go very far. Really, this bit of land wasn't that big, but it was far bigger than the classroom. Um, and uh, and we don't have to plan to the nth degree what they're going to do down there as well. That was important. Um, and it did work, actually, to some extent. Um, people began to use it, but it was still only the early years and then key stage one. By key stage two... Um, everything gets far too serious and there's uh, that's year three plus yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, by by key stage two is like okay now now the school's reputation's on the line from mm. this point on because by year six we've got to have these results so I came back from forest school training thinking okay I realize now forest school is so totally different from being a teacher that I'm going to have to wear two hats. I'm going to have to wear a teacher hat when I'm in the school because I've got a group of 30 and I'll have to apply some of the rules. Um, and then when I'm at forest school with a small group of children, because really it should be a, a smaller group of children, um, then they can have nearly all their freedoms back. I will have an idea of how every session is going to go, but I will never be... I will never be held prisoner to that plan. Uh, the children will direct where the session goes. I will give, I will facilitate the session and offer up opportunities, but they may have better ideas. And if they are, and if everyone's happy with that, we go with those ideas. No child ever has to do anything. That's another big thing. My only concern is that they're safe in the environment. If I can create planning, which is engaging enough, and when there's only a group of six or seven children, it's actually a lot easier because you can really meet individual needs when it's a group that small, um, then I can make this work. So that was one facet of it. I had to try and from morning to afternoon, depending on what I had on my schedule, I had to change from being a teacher to being a forest school leader. And I hadn't anticipated that. That was that was quite difficult because they were so different. And the other part was how do I apply this in the school setting? Because I need to persuade the school to let me take children out of maths and literacy and science and whatever other subjects they might be doing. And we're talking now about key stage two children as well, the ones that they really don't want to leave the classroom so I had to set up um, a list of prerequisites who if I've got 700 children in the school all of which would benefit and love going to these sessions but I can't take everyone uh, how do we um, how do we make it the biggest asset it can be to the school so we kind of drew up these uh, prerequisites um, I did in, in, in conjunction with some of the senior staff and and there was, I think, an urge to get the children who were difficult in the classroom, challenging with their behaviour in the classroom, to get them out of the classroom. Some people saw it as an opportunity to make their lives easier by getting these kids out of the classroom. Now, that wasn't counter to what I thought was a good idea anyway, but we were coming from different points. I was looking at it from the point of view those children shouldn't be in the classroom, so let's give them some, let's give mm. them some respite, first of all, but also see if we can help to develop them in some way. Um, give them the the tools to function better in a mainstream setting when they go back and the school 
teacher was often thinking I can't wait to get that kid out of my class because they drive me mad or or they they all the other kids will will do what I ask but that kid won't and it scuppers everything so so it kind of worked for the most part even though their view was different to mine um so um so then uh, I had them down with me I, I wasn't quite happy with that situation because sessions would get cancelled left right and center if i don't know there was a an assembly or something they'd say oh sorry you can't run a session now or oh sorry we've got to do a spelling test so that kid can't come yet and that, that sort of thing and i felt like it wasn't being valued um, so at that point i started collecting data for the children as well and it was data we collected data on children's progress in maths and literacy in particular we did collect data on other things but really really i think the school and probably schools across the country only really took it seriously when they took data for those two subjects so but i, I collected the data and what actually transpired after doing this for a couple of years was that the children who were being pushed out of the classroom because they were headaches for the teachers and weren't able to access the the traditional academic kind of uh, learning um were were Despite the fact that they were expected not to make the progress, they began to make the expected progress. And that was with them missing some of the lessons. So they were making more progress, even though they were attending less lessons. Um, and so then we asked the question, well, why was that? And I think really that comes back to what Forest School has at its core, or what it should have at its core. It's about um, personal development. It's about... Um, establishing a good level of self-esteem those children who are struggling in the classroom setting can't help but to develop a low self-esteem because they are surrounded by other children who are probably doing better than them they see as being successful um, and by dint of seeing those around and being successful them not they feel like failures and that's not going to change to any great degree because they're in the wrong place and the state school system is consistently going to behave the same. They either have to adapt to it or if they're not able to, the only answer is that they continue to fail. Um, but these kids, they did start to perform better academically even though it was the wrong place for them wow, because they had a bit more confidence in themselves. Yeah. So was it at that point that you then decided to open your own forest school? Um, well, um, well, before I was a teacher, one of my previous incarnations was uh, a tree surgeon and a gardener, and and uh, and I um, and also I had worked in children's summer camps and things like that. So, so I wasn't content in that setting. Um, then, on top of that, I'd been a teacher for ten years, and I had put so much into it. Um, with the woodland development project with the forest school always trying to find a way to to meet the needs of the children while working in a system that was contrary to their needs I was kind of washed out by it really I was exhausted by it and so we began to look for something else and and I kind of knew of jobs like the one I ended up taking and that was um, managing um, uh, a woodland setting that's owned by the Girl Guides Association um, with the intention that I would develop an educational approach there as well and so we fast forward four years and Wild Time Education is set up and I have drawn on all the previous experiences that I've had 
and now run day workshops for home ed kids mostly. We do get school groups that come in, um, but it's mostly um, home educated children uh, and early years children who have not yet made any firm decisions about what the what's So, so um, what's your age holds. group? Do you, you have quite a range of ages. And... Well, it's up to uh, the end of primary, up okay. to 11. I mean, that's not set in stone, but, but you know, as, as a rule of thumb, that's, that's what that's I say. That's what you're yeah. doing, yeah. Um, and uh, the, the longest running um, session, um, provision is, the, is now 6 to 11-year-olds, so it's a mixed age group. And, um, and I follow, in broad terms, the ethos of Forest School. Um, but I also uh, draw on my experiences and my understanding of the science, geography and history curriculum. And I take aspects of those and I... Uh, present those to the children um, as uh, opportunities for learning uh, always um, practical never sitting down with a pen and paper that sort of thing and and then the children opt in or opt out now luckily they nearly always opt in to the activities um, the sessions that I prepare are never uh, realized because we go off on tangents in all sorts of directions but the common theme is always held so I've got a set of attitudinal values which run through everything that we do at wild time whether it's the playgroup or the uh, nature school um, but um, but the within each session the direction is um, largely defined by the children I have a set of ideas that um, they can do uh, craft activities so we use tools and things like that we often have fires as well uh, we're always based in the outdoors um, it comes back to that thing of there's no such thing as bad weather only bad clothing yeah only right? inappropriate yeah. clothing yeah <laughs> I was yeah. just about to ask that and, uh, so Braxton started going to the um, the early years group and um, just the difference in him on a Wednesday when he's there based uh, uh, compared to the difference in him and other mm. days when he's at nursery. And I'm dealing with an issue at the moment of his behaviour, quote unquote. Um, and like you said before, you know, this kind of need to conform and how we, and I'm finding it very difficult to, to try and not thwart his character mm. and what makes him him and what will make him the adult he's going to be mm. and also have to make him be a good boy mm. in nursery. And whereas when he's at forest school... And I have to say, your, your your teachers there, all the ladies are amazing and so nurturing and so understanding. And they'll say to me, Braxton didn't want to do such and such today, so he did that. Yeah, which and is fine. And that's totally fine with yeah. them. So and he, he's so happy because what he wants, he just wants to be in that... There's, they've got like an amazing little woodland... Um, Oh, that's like a fairy woodland area with little, I don't know, like with a, you know, swings hanging from trees and bridges over streams. And just, he just wants to be on that swing on the tree or climbing trees. Yeah. And I've, I've never around, seen him yeah. happier. And, and it really, again, comes down to the nurturing of the teachers and how supportive they are of his character yeah. as well. And I think that's such a huge part of it. But what are the benefits also, you know, of being outdoors? Yeah, well... Um... I mean, there's quite a few studies that have that have shown, I think, beyond argument, that um, the benefits are um, major. Um, there's there's one particular study uh, that came out of America a few years ago, and I've I've often spoken of it, um, where um, they looked at 
everything related to uh, nature. They looked at prisons uh, and um, the reoffending rates among prisoners who had a view out of the prison or the cells of nature versus those that didn't. And the reoffending rates were lower in those that mm-hmm. had uh, some access to nature, even though it was a, a view out the window. Um, and they did the same thing in hospitals. You probably heard about this anyway, that those in hospital who ever can even just see a tree out the window versus the in in a quadrangle of the building, which just shows other windows. Um, they recovered quicker. Um, and then in schools, uh, they did a study of children, the performances of children with a view from the exam hall of trees versus those that didn't and uh, and their results were on average better as well so that's it without even touching the thing um being in amongst it it, it has some benefits for us um i'd say that being in amongst it um is a, is the next level up of a benefit for us is a you know if, if we were to look at under the microscope there's there's a whole kind of um cacophony of noise and activity going on in the woods and we're not particularly aware of all of it so we kind of find it a really peaceful place to be a lot of the time but sometimes if the wind's blowing it's a hugely enlivening experience and and you feel full of energy uh, when you're in that setting Um, but what we we can say with certainty is that place is alive um, and um, and teeming with life some of it we can't see we can't detect um, but when we're in a classroom, it's a quite a dead environment other than the other children around us. I love the idea of um, trees communicating with each yeah, other yeah. and um, and kind of, um, to some extent, being one entity. And we, we already know that's the case with uh, fungi un- under the ground. They can travel hundreds of miles yeah. and still be part of the same organism. But the idea, it's pretty new knowledge, I think, that uh, trees are... Um, have a way to communicate with each other under the ground but uh, above ground as well by releasing certain yeah. chemicals from their leaves which then warn other trees that there it's might be wood some wild web or something is it? I yeah, yeah I've heard, heard that phrase coined yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah there's so much more going on than we realise uh, but why do, well, I don't know, some of the mystery is nice anyway just to, just to know that it's alive and there's things that we don't understand but going on all around us I, I find that as long as we feel we're connected to it then, uh, then that's what we want to get from it. Um, because children probably have never felt less connected to nature. And, uh, and I, would, I would go so far as to say that um, children feel more akin to uh, computers and virtual technology um, than they do to the natural world. Because I, I remember being a, when I was a school teacher, I had children. If I decided to take the lesson onto the field, they'd be, I don't want to sit on the grass. I don't want to yeah. sit down. And then I'd say, well, should we sit on... They were happy to sit on the concrete, but they didn't want to sit on the grass. Mm. Um, this is unfamiliar if you live in a very urban environment, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, but, yeah, but it's, it's scary, the idea that we, um, we feel so disassociated from the natural world. Yeah. When we are... A, a part of it you know yeah, we, are we can argue nature. whether we're a good part of it or not but but we're definitely a part of it and it's shocking to think that there are a generation of children growing up so disassociated from it that they uh, they they can't see themselves as part of it in any form it's funny when i when i was a teenager I, there was a tree down by the river where i lived in the village and if i wanted to just have a bit of time to myself or i used to just take a book there and just sit in the base of this big oak tree and just by the river just kind of relax 
But I mean, it's so lucky to be able to do so that. Lucky. Yeah. So lucky. Yeah. That's kind of the thing you see on, you know, on films. It's so idyllic. But when you live in an urban setting and you grow up in an urban setting, you don't even feel like that's it's, an option. Yeah, no, yeah. no. And yet true. there are parks everywhere, but... Yeah, so. this, this actually speaks to a, a bigger issue as well, because if we don't have... If the children don't develop an affinity to nature in these early years of development, when... when then what does that mean for the future? Because if they don't develop that positive relationship with nature, are they going to care enough to make difficult decisions later on mm. in order to save it? Mm. Um, yeah, I think it makes the the, uh, the challenge that bit harder if they don't feel connected to it. But I suppose as, so as parents, you can just encourage your kids to go, to take them into the woods and into the parks or, or to bring them to a forest school or mm. just, you know, to, 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 to make that an important part of the... Yeah, the bringing up of your kid, um, and I think I think a bit like the um, what I was saying about the teachers not knowing what they should do with the children when they got into that into the woodland that I had helped um, prepare for them. Uh, I think a lot of parents feel the same that uh, well, okay, I could take them to the woods or whatever, but then what am I going to do? There's no swings there, there's no slides, there's no merry-go-round. So what what do I do then? But and yet, if you um, watch children, they just they just do their own thing. They pick yeah, yeah, things up. They no, get. To... You're right. You're right. But but if it depends how old the child is, though, because if a child has got so used to going to um, a playground as their outside entertainment, then they may well find themselves in the same position. Mm. Uh, it might already be established enough in them that they need yes. a resource uh, that clearly signposts how they're supposed to interact with it. Uh, they might have lost some of their creativity. Um, so, like a woodcraft or something. Yeah, well, it doesn't even. People yeah, it doesn't even need need to be that. I mean, there's loads of books. I'm sure you could do an internet search for ideas for parents uh, taking their children in the woods, and you come up with a million different things yeah. that just involve having a stick. Um, yeah, I, I I think the important thing is having uh, getting your children out there and having the right clothing so that they can focus on. Um, having some fun and not be worried about being too cold or, or even too hot or thirsty yeah. and hungry. Wrapping up now. Okay. Yes. If you could kind of uh, send everyone away who's listening to this with a message, what's the message? Hmm. Apart from everything we've just talked about. <laughs> um, well, I, I would say that um, we're all doing the best we can with what we've got. That home education isn't the answer for everyone because there have to be the right set of circumstances in place for it to work. It's possible to overcome the issues that formal education in the state system uh, create, but it takes hard work for the parent. Um, so, of course, um, there are loads of adults out there who um, have made successful successes of their lives and function very well in society and they went through the school system so so what we're not saying is that uh, if your child goes to school then uh, they're going to end up coming unstuck at some point but um, be open to the idea that there are alternatives out there yeah so, so that leads on quite oh and get out get out in nature that's actually uh, my yes. biggest message really I was yeah. hoping you'd say yeah. that and, and yeah. I guess also like just just keep an eye on your child and just see what you know see what's just connect to them so you can see see what's going on listen to what they're saying when they come back from school about what's going on and try yeah. and encourage the 
Actually, that's one of the questions that we've got for you, haven't we? Yeah, so we get some listener questions in. Okay. And uh, we we've just got two. Should I start with mine? Yeah. Okay, so this is from Robin. Um, She has just asked, if my child's not doing very well in a subject at school, how would you uh, suggest that I support him or her in an encouraging way? Um, I would say that, um, first of all, that child needs to know that the fact that they're not performing particularly well in that subject should not define them. It doesn't matter as much as they think it matters. The, the, uh, there is a danger that the school and the teacher may make that child believe that it's more important than it actually is. When I had children in year six just before their sats and I'd take them down t- into the woods for a session, I um, slightly um, subversively would say to them, don't worry about these exams, it doesn't reflect on you at all. Uh, you might feel a lot of pressure, forget about it, the pressure's all on your teachers actually, okay? Yeah, oh, that's um, lovely, yeah. So, yeah, to the mum I'd say... What you don't want to do is build it up as being a bigger problem than it actually is. Um, There is time. When they're this young, there's time to make loads of progress. Um, It's harder if if the child's at school because you're not allowed to leave them be until uh, a time further down the road where they might better access that bit of learning. but if you've got a, a voice in, your, if you're the voice in your child's ear saying it's not the biggest thing in the world, that will definitely help. Because what yeah. you don't want is for them to feel like failures because yeah. they can't do it. Yeah. So Thank the you. other question we have is from Lisa. For those of us who have chosen to stay in the mainstream school system, how do we implement these ideas and concepts at home to help our children thrive, regardless? I mean, we did slightly touch on that because that's mm, my mm. my own question as well. But yeah, well, the best piece of yeah, advice I mean, me. I, I would definitely say. Try and expose your child to as many opportunities and different experiences to to what they would have if they were at school as possible. Um, That doesn't mean filling every moment because they do need downtime. Of course they do. And they need to experience a bit of what we might call boredom so that they can um, come up with their own ideas and be a bit more creative with what they've got around them without it being put on a plate for them. But give them more opportunities to do things that they wouldn't otherwise have time for. Um, what was it? What was the second part of that question? It was, uh, for those of us who have chosen to stay in the mainstream school system, how do we implement these ideas and concepts at home to help our children thrive regardless? So okay, if we, yeah. they are in school, so, so w- what can we do yeah, to help? And so on top of what I've just said, I would also add that um, the, your, your child's opportunities for being outdoors are extremely limited at school. It pretty much amounts to, unless you're at one, a school with a forest school, leader there um it amounts to pe and so much of the time pe is indoors or cancelled even uh for often ridiculous reasons i found um so get your children outside as well and not necessarily to the park but to a more wild setting i think that's quite important the park is quite a sterile environment really short grass and some playground uh, equipment and children i in my experience tend to think if you say we're going to the park they think that means playground mm, um, yeah. so the association is with that area rather than the natural park mm-hmm. so actually take them to places where there isn't a playground where there's a, a woodland and, and yeah. a meadow and things like that um, nice for the parent too yeah, <laughs> yeah just put a couple of ideas in your back pocket that you can just look up online for activities if they are in need of you facilitating the experience a little bit yeah. um, so that you've got an activity idea that doesn't require any equipment or anything but again that can, involves can you say getting... to your kids we're going forest bathing today <laughs> yeah <laughs> like walking in the woods that's what they call it now isn't it forest forest, forest bathing it's oh, like, a right. ja- it's like the Japanese um, 
word there's a Japanese word and it's called forest bathing and ah. it's literally just the benefits of walking through the woods yeah, yeah. No, I hadn't heard that that's nice actually. isn't it yeah, yeah. yeah as we always do we have a little bit of time now to talk about what we're into this week so what are you into uh, so I'm really into my beeswax wraps at the moment in a, in a my continuous bid to be more sustainable and stop using cling film. Mm-hmm. So I've got all these lovely beeswax wraps and Daniel hates them because he says they go grubby and you've got to wash them up and the rest of it. But you know, I think there's a price, there's going to be a price to pay with everything, you know, when we're, we're going, we're trying to be more sustainable. And if my price to pay is that I have to wash. They're quite pretty, aren't they? I've seen them. Really pretty. Do you know what? My fridge looks so much nicer. And through having them, I've realized how much cling film I use because when things are cling filmed in my fridge, I'm not really noticing them, but because I've got these wraps and they've got pictures of bees all over and I'm noticing how many of my things have cling film on or, you know, when I took, um, I, I, I peeled an apple for Vida and I took it out and I wrapped it in that. And it was just lovely to kind of open that. I felt proud to open that up and give her the apple from mm. that. So, yeah, that's there what I'm go. into this week. That's really nice. What about you? Well, um, I think because we've been talking a lot about the education and the way it's maybe not as good as it could be, um, I've then thought about it with this book that I read called A Whole New Mind, which is about why... The creative side of um, of education is is so important and does need to be valued as much as um, the non creative subjects. Just because and and this book kind of goes into why you know what that means. So it's about how design is important in the future because it's not no longer just good enough to have a good idea or have a, a business that is like gives good value it also has to look great mm. and be presented well. So things like design and creativity is therefore you know, really important and should be encouraged. And I think that's 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 why I chose that. So it's a whole, a whole new, new mind. mind, yeah. Yeah. Do you have something you're into this week, Dominic? Well, uh, <laughs> kind of. <clears throat> so, um, unfortunately, one of them is kind of vaguely work-related. But so much of what I enjoy is related to what I do work-wise that um, it's hard to separate the two anyway. But, what a problem um, to have. That's a great, yeah. that's, that's, you've got living the dream then, aren't you? Yeah, really? yeah. Uh, so next, each of my half terms with the older children has a theme, an overarching theme, and next half term the title for is um, The Natural Navigator, and it's partly inspired by this book by a chap called uh, Tristan Gooley, and um, called The Natural Navigator. And it's all about reading the signals in nature. And they can sometimes be really little things like uh, the temperature of the rock in the woods, one side versus the other, indicating where the sun's setting and the sun's rising. And it might be the direction of the clouds indicating what the weather might be like the next day, that sort of thing. Those hidden mm, signals nice, in nature yeah. that um, that we can learn from, but uh, we're often uh, oblivious to uh, so that's uh, that's one thing, and the other thing is that um, we got rid of our TV a little while back, and uh, and it hasn't been uh, as much of a chore as I thought it would be. But uh, the children were, we felt like we were relying on it too much. The children were watching it too much, and we needed to make a change. And they have have been amazing, actually. They've, they've played more than they ever used to. Um, with their toys, you know, we just had an abundance abundance of toys that they never used. And now, now they use. I suppose it helps that you live in the woods, though. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, yeah. how old are your children? Uh, nine and four, nearly oh, five. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, how lovely. The 
so so anyway the thing the other thing i'm into at the minute is the waking dead because i watched an episode on my tablet and uh, and kind of got hooked so in the last week and a half i've watched about 15 episodes oh, I love that. so yeah wow. <laughs> yeah that's a good way to relax too isn't it right yeah Thank you so much. We, I mean, we've just enjoyed this so much. It's been so eye-opening and so much information to take away. It's so important, isn't it? So well. important. It's the future for everybody. Yeah, and I just really hope that everyone listening has kind of gained as much from this as I have. Yeah. Um, I just think there's so much to take away from this. So I'd like to end with a little quote um, from H.G. Wells, <laughs> not from Sir Ken this time. Civilization is a race between education and catastrophe. So uh, let's all hope that we can go the education way and make it a bit more holistic and, and, and benefit from that. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of Healthy Happy Home. We're so grateful to every single one of you who chooses to press play. Please connect with us over on Instagram at Healthy Happy Home Podcast. We have a heap of amazing giveaways and discounts and remember to use the hashtag Elevation Nation. And if you enjoy our show, why not tell your fellow elevators about us or people who you think could benefit from each episode message. Rating, reviewing and subscribing to Healthy Happy Home will also help other people to find us so that we can grow our Elevation Nation. Thank you to Mega Home Water Distillers for sponsoring this season of Healthy Happy Home. Head over to megahome-distillers.co.uk to learn more about the most reliable and efficient home drinking water distiller on the market and to benefit from a 5% discount as a listener of Healthy Happy Home by using the code HHH5 at checkout. Thank you to Megahome.